John chapters 13 through 21 are all have to do with the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. So much to the point where many scholars will say they recorded so much detail that when they recorded it, if you were to take that amount of detail and apply that to the three years of Jesus' ministry, it would fill up three or four Bibles. Because it was almost like the, the, the authors said, okay, and this was the really important part. This was the part that we don't want anybody to miss. This is the part that we just cannot skip on the details. We just cannot just gloss over. This is the important part. And here's why. And here's what you know and here's what I know. That Jesus knew that this was his last 24 hours. And what's significant about that is for all of us at some point in life, we're going to have a last 24 hours. But very few of us know when that last 24 hours is. And Jesus knowing everything, Jesus understanding everything, Jesus knowing what's going to happen in the future, Jesus knowing the cross that would be before him, launched into the last 24 hours of his life. And if we were in that same situation, come on, if you're in that same situation and you know you have 24 hours to live, you would live those last 24 hours with extraordinary purpose. And Jesus lived his entire life with extraordinary purpose. But if you or I I were to be in that situation, come on, what would you do? What would you do if you knew that you had 24 hours to live and only 24 hours? If you knew this breakfast that you're about to eat was your last breakfast, or you wanted to kind of double down and go breakfast and then brunch that you were going to eat, was your last brunch. This was the last lunch you'd have. In fact, this was the last time you would ever eat dinner. This is the last time you'd be around your friends. This is the last conversation with your family. I mean, you wouldn't waste a sentence. You wouldn't waste a word. You wouldn't waste a minute. There would be laser sharp focus and purpose around your last 24 hours if you knew it was your last 24 hours. The conversations that you had, the teachings perhaps that you gave, would be so meaningful. And so insightful, in fact, we kind of experienced a glimpse of this. A lot of times in the university world where there's a professor who's taught and taught maybe for you know, years or decades perhaps, and they get to their last lecture. And they're oftentimes recorded, they're oftentimes you know, massive amounts of people attend to basically hear this person speak and talk about life and oftentimes the meaning of life for the very last time. In fact, I experienced this one time. My mother, who passed away you know, five or six years ago, Right before she passed away, you know, it was kind of coming towards the end of her life. We didn't know this, you know, how much longer she had. We just knew the, the, the end was imminent. Maybe a couple of weeks left. And we had a bunch of family that was coming in town. Everybody was saying their last goodbyes. But before we had a big wave of family come in, I remember my mom getting us together on the bed. It was my sister, my mom, my stepdad, and I. And for about 20 minutes, she just talked. And she said, come here. I want everybody, I want the closest people around me. And I just want to tell you some stuff. And she shared And we laughed, and we cried. And what we're going to read today is kind of like Jesus' last conversation with his disciples. Because Jesus came, he lived for about 33, 32, 31, 35 years. And the last three years of that was public ministry. And on the heels of all of his public ministry, on the heels of all of his teachings, on the heels of all of his miracles, on the heels of the fact that he brought a dead guy back to life, that he fed people, that he made people who couldn't see, see the people that couldn't walk, walk. He would calm the storms. I mean, he would just do some tremendous things. He would have unbelievable teachings where people would come by the tens and sometimes the thousands. Jesus sat down at the Last Supper with his closest disciples and had what was called the Passover 
which we talked about a few weeks back, which had incredible symbolism for the nation of Israel, that there was a time that the nation of Israel was going to face the judgment of God. And year after year, they would come and celebrate this time when the nation of Israel escaped the judgment of God because of the blood of the Lamb. The nation of Israel escaped the judgment of God because of the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus gets his disciples together, gets his closest people together, and says, now let me tell you, this meal, our last meal together, has new significance. That my body is going to be broken for you. And my blood is going to be shed for you. And on the heels again of this meal, he talks to a guy named Judas who was going to betray him, who he knew the entire time was going to betray him. And basically says, Judas, go do what you already know that you're going to do. And so Judas walks out of the door. Judas walks out the door. And so now, now, it's the 11 closest disciples that Jesus has. And what we're going to read this morning is the beginning of about two and a half chapters of Jesus' talk, of Jesus' conversation, of saying, basically, this is our last conversation together. This is my last time to talk to you. This is your last time to ask me questions. And at the epicenter of what we're going to find is interesting. When Jesus launches into his conversation, again, not wanting to waste any time, not wanting to waste any words, gets right from the beginning of what is at the core and the epicenter of all of our faith. Now, now here, here, here's what's interesting. If you're in here, you're not a Christian. Kind of, you know, checking this whole thing out. Not really sure about God. Not really sure about Christianity. Oh, frankly, not even really sure about the Bible. Here, here's, what's, here's what's good for you. There's a lot of thoughts when it comes to Christianity. There's a lot of beliefs. There's a lot of Old Testaments and New Testaments. And there's so much to understand. So much to learn. It can sometimes be overwhelming. Here, here's what's good for you today. When Jesus got to the end of his life, he drilled down to the absolute epicenter of what is at the Christian faith. That is to say, for you, of all the things that you could believe, of all the things that you could investigate about Christianity, this is for you at the core of what God would want you to understand about your relationship or your potential relationship with your heavenly Father. So let's read it together. We're going to be in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 31. John records this. He says, when he had gone out, talking about Judas, so Jesus had kind of just dismissed Judas, and it was kind of an interesting interaction where Jesus says, I'm going to dip my hand in, and somebody's going to dip your hand in. When I dip, you dip. You leave and betray me. And so as Judas kind of leaves, and I don't know why I thought that, but it just, you know, the dip and... As Judas leaves, and, and nobody really knows what's going on. Nobody knows why Judas is. Nobody knows, or else they probably would have fought him. But Jesus, you know, talks to Judas and basically says in this covert way, you know, basically go do what you're about to do. And so Judas leaves. So again, Judas leaves, just the core 11 around. And so Jesus starts to go into this conversation. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, let me pause and say this. If you don't like the Bible, this is why you don't like the Bible. Because you read that and you're like, what in the world did Jesus just say? Like, that was the most circular logic. Like, I have no, so, 
So what, you know, and, and, and here's what's funny, is oftentimes when you get to a passage like this, you're like, man, I wonder, you know, I wish, I wish our pastor was here to explain what this means. Here's, here's, here's the good news. I have no clue what Jesus was trying to say here. Just absolutely, and what's fascinating, you can read, you can read all kinds of, you know, commentaries about this, and almost every commentary is like, yeah, well, if he probably, if he meant that, it probably means this, but if he means this, it probably means that, but either way, it kind of works. So just Cumulatively, we have no clue what Jesus meant right here. But here was, his, here, you know, here, here, here was kind of the bottom line of what he was saying. What's about to happen, what's about to happen is going to glorify God. In other words, what we would later find out, or what the disciples later would find out, and what we know through looking back through the lens of history, is that soon and very soon, within the next 24 hours, Jesus was going to be brutally murdered on a cross. And it's almost like Jesus says, before we go through this whole thing, and you don't know what we're about to go through, let me just tell you, what's about to happen, let me eliminate the idea of scandal that maybe God doesn't know what's going on. That what we're about to go through is about to be glorifying to God. And he's going to glorify me because of it, and I'm going to glorify him because of it, and because of the fact that he's glorified, I'm glorified, and I'm glorified, that he's glorified. So this whole package and idea simply glorifies God. And I even said to the disciples, and I know you don't know what it means yet, but I just want you to know that this is going to go to the glorification of God, not to the demise of God. He continues on, he says this. He says, little children, which is kind of funny because it's degrading, because these are grown men. <laughs> little children, I'm like, bro. <laughs> little children, yet a little while I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So he kind of pauses and says this, he reaches back to something that they experienced before. In John chapter 7, starting at verse 33, or starting at verse you know, 31, 32, Jesus has this interaction with this Jewish audience, and this, this Jewish audience that would oftentimes come, and they would try to you know, prove him wrong, and prove him wrong, and prove him wrong. And the funny thing was, every time you prove Jesus wrong, and in fact, if you were in the neighborhood of proving Jesus wrong, the problem is, he would just talk circles around you. And you would leave so frustrated, and hate him even more, and you had no clue why, because he was confusing and so jesus talked to the jews and he says hey i'm going to a place where you can't go and where you can't go i'm going so don't try to find me they're like what you know what are you talking about and so he reaches back and says disciples i'm going to go to a place where you can't go i'm going to go do something that you cannot do now now in this idea, in this idea is the first stone the, the first you know centerpiece the first stepping stone for what is and what would become Christianity. And it's simply this, that God went where we couldn't go to do what we couldn't do. That God went where we couldn't go to do what we couldn't do. That in a few hours from this point, Jesus was going to be hung on a cross. And the purpose of being hung on a cross was not to make us feel bad. It was to deliver us from our sins. That on the cross, we don't believe that just an innocent man hung on the cross. That an innocent man, as the writers of the New Testament would some point say, would for us become sin, so that in him we would find the righteousness of God. That Isaiah, thousands of years before, would prophesy that he would bear all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our iniquities. And what we believe is that you and I are incapable of gaining a right relationship with God in and of our own efforts. That I can't make myself not sinful. Because let's be honest, 
I've made mistakes. I've just decided some bad things. I've intentionally rebelled against God. A lot of times we say, oh, yeah, you know, I've made some mistakes. It's like, man, I plan my mistakes, and we call it spring break. You know, I pay for my mistakes. I'm going on a cruise ship full of mistakes in a couple weeks, you know, and I plan. And, and, and here's the reality. Here's the reality is when that happens, when that happens, Jesus took the weight of all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and bore the weight of the world of sin on his shoulders and was crushed on the cross. Not because of the cross itself, but because and by the weight of our sin that he carried. So he says to the disciples, he says, I'm going to go where you can't go when you're not going to be able to go, just in the same way I told them, and I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. But someday you're going to. Someday you're going to have salvation. But you can't do what I'm going to do. And you can't do it in the same way that I did it. But here's how you can participate, he would say. And so a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you. You are to also love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, huge idea here. Because up to this point, it was common thought, okay, do loving things for your neighbor. Do loving things for your neighbor. The way that Jesus communicated this was not do loving things for people. is that you would feel a genuine love for other people. That the way, the way that you act, the way that you behave, the way that you conduct yourself as a Christian would be the hallmark of the Christian faith. Love, as the writers of the New Testament would go on to kind of parse out through their writings, displayed through service. Paul in the book of Philippians gives such a beautiful example of this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, hey, hey, Christians, 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 let me, let me just talk to Christians for a second. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility, consider everyone else better than yourself. We've talked about this before, that you would walk into a room full of people and think that every single person in the room is better than you are, not try to project yourself as better than everybody else in the room. And in fact, on top of that, on top of that, you would consider not only your own interests, but also the interest of others. And he launches into this idea that you should have the same attitude of Christ Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself, made himself nothing. For the joy set before him, he served, he became a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That he humbled himself, he served, and he loved, and he sacrificed for people who he had no business sacrificing for. And Jesus looks at the group and says, come on. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to participate in my death by loving people the same way that I've loved you. In other words, the love of God displayed on the cross, the love of God displayed on the cross ought to inspire us as Christians to go do the same. Jesus would say, the same way that I have loved you. In other words, you're about to see how I'm going to love you. I'm about to be brutally murdered on a cross for you. And there should not be a person who you ever lock eyes with who you don't love in the same way. And in fact, I want this to be so strong that the way the entire world knows that you're my disciples is by the way that you love one another. A.K.A., 
If there's any other way that people know you're a Christian, if there's any other way besides the way that you love one another that people would know you're a Christian, you're probably doing something wrong. See, as Christians, as Christians, let's just be honest. We're known for about everything else than the way that we love. In fact, come on. If you're here, you're not a Christian, you're on the periphery of church, you're just kind of checking this whole thing out. Isn't that true? That the reason that perhaps you're not a Christian, the reason that you're not really that interested in faith isn't because of God, isn't because of Jesus, isn't because of the Bible. Maybe for you, perhaps you're interested in all that. But you have such a bad taste in your mouth because of Christians, because of judgmentalism, because of the hypocrisy, because of the way that you seem to be, they just seem to be unloving. As Christians, we're known more by our political ideas than we are by the way that we love. As Christians, we're known more by our stances than by the way that we love. As Christians, we're known more about how we feel that black lives matter. As Christians, we're known more how we feel by our tweets and our Instagrams and our Facebook posts than the way that we serve the people around us. Jesus looks at us and says, come on, come on. And you ought to. This ought to be so transformative in your life. The way that my love is displayed for you and the way that my love will be poured out for you ought to be so transformative in your life that my love for you wells up inside of you and pours out into a love for other people. Now, what I, this is just one of the things I love about the Bible. Because we hear that and we say, man, that sounds phenomenal. But what happens next is exactly the same thing that happens for us. Because in the wake of this just dynamic statement, there's not a discourse about, okay, so Jesus, wow, how do we do that better? How do we love the people around us better? It's not, okay, so what does that look like, nuts and bolts? I mean, how do I apply that to my cubicle at work? You know, how do I apply that to my roommate, my family, you know, my little brother, my little sister? Good grief, you know. How do I apply that? What's funny is they dismiss it, just like we do. They dismiss it. They just kind of, okay, okay. So Jesus, where are you going again? You know, okay, love, love, love. Cool, 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 cool. But Jesus... So, so you said, we can't go where you're going. Well, we would like to go where you're going. So, so tell us where you're going, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, they just completely, honestly, they completely dismiss it. And it happens, if you read the Bible, it happens over and over in Scripture that Jesus will say just an incredibly important statement like this, and they just go back to something that's almost irrelevant. In fact, here's how Peter says it. So he says this, you know, begin, big statement, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Big mission. Verse 36. So Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> so, so hold on tell us about this place that we can't go anymore because that whole love thing's cool that's a little bit challenging and that, whatever we don't even really know what that looks like so, so tell us about where you're going again and Jesus answered him where I am going you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterwards in other words Peter there's going to come a time where you're going to go through the same thing that I went through in fact what's interesting is Peter would go through the exact same thing he would be crucified in fact many people, uh, uh, historians will say that he was actually crucified upside down when he died and Peter would go through very similar stuff and Jesus says you're not going to go through that yet yeah eventually you're going to go through that but Peter said to him Lord why can I not follow you now I will lay down my life for you and Jesus answered Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, let me tell you what I just love about this. This, this, this 
is our experience. If you've ever been to a Christian camp, let's just talk Christian camp for a second, okay? I was a part of an organization, still am in some capacities, a part of an organization that we put on camps and camps and camps, and we try to do the best that we could to kind of avoid some of this. But what happens at every camp inevitably, especially a week-long camp, weekends are kind of, you know, tricky, but week-long camps, you know, you get there day one, everybody's, oh my gosh, we love Jesus, yes we do, you know, and you're trying to sit by the cute girl on the bus, and everybody goes to the thing, and you get put in groups, and it's fun, and you go through a series of teachings, it's Monday night, it's Tuesday night, it's Wednesday night, and the last night of camp's Thursday night at camp, you know, and by the time Thursday night comes around, everybody is so exhausted, and we don't tell you this, everybody's so exhausted that we just emotionally manipulate you, you know what I'm saying? Like... We don't really, but that's what it seems like. You know, the last time I came, like, everybody's crying. Like, all the girls are like, I'm crying. It's like, why are you crying? I don't know, but I'm crying, you know, because everybody around me is crying. And then you see, like, five guys that are crying. You're like, dude, get out of here, you know. So everybody, I mean, everybody's just so emotional. And, and here's what happens. I mean, almost every time. We get to the end of a camp. We get to the end of a religious experience. We get to the end. Maybe it's a church service. Maybe for you it's a quiet time. Maybe for you it was a camp. And we make declaration after declaration after declaration to God. God, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to burn all. Some of you guys weren't around when this happened. I'm going to burn all of my secular CDs. Anybody ever go to a secular CD burning party? Don't admit that if you did. We can't even do that anymore. Like, I'm going to trash on my iPod. I'm going to upload them to the cloud, actually. It's not a big deal. God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up this much earlier. I'm going to wake up, you know, I'm going to pray this much. God, I'm going to go tell this many people. God, this is what I'm going to do for you. And the funny thing is, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, is that Jesus looks at Peter after Peter. And this is the, the interesting thing about Peter. Peter wasn't wrong. Peter wasn't misintentioned. He wasn't, you know, just, oh, my gosh, Peter, what are you doing? You're so self-focused. You know, Peter, Peter said, I have a genuine love for you, God, that I would be willing to do whatever whenever. And Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, that's what you think. But you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the night's even over. Peter, I appreciate your intention. Peter, I appreciate what you're trying to do. But Peter, let me tell you how you participate in my kingdom. You participate in my kingdom you participate in my death and resurrection. Not by making declarations and not by proving your love for me. You participate in my kingdom. As you acknowledge my love for you. And my love for you wells up into a love for other people. You see, later in the, in the New Testament, again, writers would say it this way. That we love we love, we love God, we love other people, because he first loved us. You see, it's the acknowledgement that he went where we couldn't go that drives a love that's incomprehensible to the world around us. And that night, Peter would deny him three times. And over a period of 40 days, Jesus would show up. And show up and show up. And then the Holy Spirit would come down at Pentecost. And, Jesus, and, and the Spirit of God would fill Peter to the point where this guy, who just a few weeks earlier denied him three times, stood up and gave the sermon, the very first sermon in the history of the church. And over 3,000 people came to Christ that very first 
day. And it wasn't because Peter decided to do something unbelievable for God. It's because Peter was impacted by the love of God, filled with the spirit of God, and did the loving thing, which was on that day to preach the gospel. And Jesus would say, at the epicenter of your faith, At the epicenter of your faith is not a decision to change. It's not a decision to do something for God. At the epicenter of your faith, at the epicenter of my faith, is a realization of God's love for you and the realization of God's love for you welling up into a love for other people. So let me ask you this. For you, in your life, what's the area of life? What's the area of life for you that you're the most unloving? What's the area of, what's the relationship for you where you have the most difficult time loving that person? What's the area of life where you walk into that environment and you have a tendency to be the, to be the most selfish? What's the place in life? What's the avenue in life? What's the arena in life? Where for you, it's easier perhaps to avoid, it's easier to be unloving. In fact, come on, come on, for some of us, we think about that. The things that we think about is, oh my gosh, I just gotta be so mushy and so gushy. Let's be honest, for many of us, the place that we're most selfish is that we refuse to have difficult conversations. We refuse to see somebody who we know is going through something unbelievable. We see somebody who perhaps is making just decisions that's being incredibly destructive to their lives and we're too self-focused to say anything about it. And so the people that we love suffer unnecessarily. Let me ask you this. In the area of life where you have the tendency to be the most selfish, in the area of life where you have the tendency to be the most unloving, what would be the most loving, selfless thing that you could do? If you didn't care about yourself and you only cared about God, if you didn't care about yourself and you only cared about the other person, what would you do? How would your house be different? How would your work be different? How would school be different? How would your family be different? How would your relationships be different? Because here's the reality. We're all like Peter. We all want to hear this and make a decision to do something else. We all want to hear this and say, okay, God, well, this is how far I would be willing to go. But as we look across the landscape of our lives, The reality is the only way that we have the power to become the people that God has called us to do, to do the things that God has called us to do, because God has called us to change. He has called us to make an impact. But the only way that's possible is as you and I experience on a daily basis the love of God, and the love of God wells up inside of you for love for other people. So when you walk into the environment that is so difficult to be loving, you have been so radically transformed by the gospel, so radically transformed by the cross of Jesus Christ, you walk into that environment, and you aren't thinking about yourself. You're simply thinking, how can I love the people around me? How can I love my family? How can I love my roommates? How can I love my coworkers? How can I love my schoolmates? How can I love the people that are on my team? How can I love anybody and everybody that I come into contact with? Because I know that I am a sinful person. I know that I'm not just a mistake maker. I'm an intentional mistake maker. I'm a rebeller and a rebellious person. And I serve a God who so deeply loved me that he sent his son to die for me on the cross. And in light of that, 
I am going to love people in the exact same way. At the epicenter of your faith, as Jesus gathered his disciples together to kick off what would be a couple chapters of discourse, he said, it first starts, it first starts with me going and doing where you can't go and what you can't do. But I have called you to participate in loving. As you're so deeply impacted by the love that I have for you. So for you, for you, what's the area of your life that we're talking about that you just know? What's the relationship that you just know? What's the conversation that you just know that you need to have? What does love require of you? See, we're going to end this service in a second. We're going to end it by taking communion together. And our hope is that when we take communion, as you come forward and as you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup, it's not just bread and it's not just some juice that you're dipping it into. It's this idea. It's this idea that a Savior, a sinless Savior, died for you. And we're praying and we're hoping that that reality so deeply impacts your life. You are transformed. If you're here, you're just kind of on the outskirts, you're not really sure, man. We just want this to be a serious time for anybody and everyone who's given their life to Jesus. For you to come to the realization that in the same way God did this for you, that ought to be so impactful that you go and you do it for other people. Not because, not because you decide this morning to make a declaration that you are going to love people, but because you've been so impacted, you can't help but love other people. When we take communion, just kind of point of clarification, we're going to come down in the middle, go on the outside. When we don't do that, it's an absolute train wreck in here. But here's what I want to end with. You're here, not a Christian, perhaps, you know, walked away from your faith for a season and just reinvestigate and just on the periphery kind of church and this whole idea of faith. Let me just, let me just end with this thought. How much different, how much differently would you think about God? We say this almost every week to come together. Come on. If Christians lived like this, how much more open to faith would you be? If Christians actually embodied this, how much more open to God would you be? Because for many of us who are wrestling with the idea of faith, many of us who have pushed faith aside, the central reason is not because of God. It's because we have seen Christians who are supposed to be described by love, but would be described any other way more adequately because they are some of the most unloving people that you have ever met. And what if, what if, what if, what if Jesus so deeply impacted a group that their love For anybody and everybody, regardless of what they thought, regardless of what they believed, regardless of what they did, was so dynamic that it was apparent it could only come from God. I think you'd be a lot more open to the Bible. I think you'd be a lot more open to Jesus. And I'm praying and I'm hoping that you experience that. I'm praying and I'm hoping that you experience that. Where you go... Perhaps you experience that while you're here. Perhaps you join a community group and you experience that as a group in community. Or perhaps you just meet a group of Christians that make you more open to their Heavenly Father as they become the person that God's called them to be. So for you, if you're a Christian, again, what's your area?
What's your arena that you know, you know, you know, you know? You've kept from God, and you've been unloving and selfish. But you need to be so deeply impacted by the cross, you cannot help but love in any and every area of your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this time. God, I pray for all my friends. God, I pray for everyone in here who's a Christian. As they come up and as they take communion, you would so deeply impact us with your love. You would so deeply impact us by your grace. You would so deeply impact us by your mercy that you had mercy on sinful people like us, that you took every single one of our individual sins and bore them on the cross when you died for us. God, I pray that that love would drive us, would well up inside of us, and would compel us to love the world around us. That we would each examine our lives. And in any and every area that we act selfishly, in any and every area that we act unlovingly, you would help us to act as you would act. You would help us to ask, what's the loving thing to do? You would help us to understand what does love require of me? And God, I pray that you would transform us as a community, as you transform each one of us individually, that people would know us, that people would see us. People would see the way that we love and the way that we care, the way that we serve. And that they would know that you're our God and we are your disciples by the way that we love. So God, as we come, as we take communion, would you just simply impact us? Drill into us. Explode our hearts with your love that you loved us with. As you took this bread and you broke it, as you took this cup and you shared it, and you explained that this was going to be your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. God, I pray that that would just be so dynamic in our lives. That the consequence would be us simply loving a world like you loved. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.